Hello, welcome back to Gardo Goes Geek podcast where hopefully you'll join me for some geeky discussions. Today's discussion, I thought it'd be interesting to cover the idea of does canon matter? So firstly, I think we need to define what we mean by canon because some people out there may not have heard this term before. Canon is generally considered the things that count as part of a a franchise or a body of work. So, for example, um, in the case of something like the Fast and the Furious films, to use a, a more general, less nerdy example, all of those films form the canon of that particular body of work. So every event in those films is canon with the events later on. In the case of, for example, comics, everything that exists in Marvel Comics as part of the main Marvel Universe counts as canon, unless it is deliberately contradicted by something later on, which is where you get things like retcons, which is a retroactive change to existing continuity. And sometimes things are just changed for reasons where people decide actually that we don't like that idea anymore. It does happen. But canon um, has taken on a more specific term regarding three big franchises especially, which I'm going to dive into here today. And that is the Marvel Cinematic Universe, although I'm not going to go quite as in-depth on it as I did in my last episode, Star Trek and Star Wars. Now, all of these franchises have their own relationships with canon. Marvel is, I'll cover first, within the the Marvel Cinematic Universe, there is obviously the Marvel Cinematic Films, which are generally considered by most audience members as canon. They are the true story of the Marvel Universe. For most people, those are the only things in the MCU. However, they're not. Other things that exist within the Marvel Cinematic Universe, at least in terms of how Marvel approached them when they were released, include not just television series, such as Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the Netflix shows, such as Daredevil, The Punisher, the Hulu shows, such as Cloak and Dagger and Runaways... Uh, as well as other shows like Agent Carter, Inhumans, Hellstrom. However, it also includes uh, a list of shorts, um, such as the Marvel one-shots that were released online uh, and on the DVDs and Blu-rays of certain films, uh, such as All Hail the King and The Consultant. And it also includes several comic series published by Marvel, Usually as preludes to new films, but there are certain ones such as, for example, Fury's Big Week, um, which tie events of certain films together. Fury's Big Week is an interesting one. It suggests that Thor, Iron Man 2 and the Incredible Hulk all take place within the same week in the Marvel Universe, which is a very, very interesting idea, but what a week. Now... Obviously, as Marvel 
makes out all of these, unless contradicted by something else, exist as canon. Um, this also includes several video games as well, which I forgot to mention. Um, however, I think all of those are now listed as non-canon, having been contradicted by later films. So technically, the comics, all the TV series, all the shorts, all officially still count as canon. Most people now, especially now that Marvel Studios are doing their own films on Disney+, Plus, uh, their own television series on Disney+, Plus, I should say, don't seem to ag agree anymore that the non-Marvel Studios properties count as canon. So... Daredevil, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Inhumans, Iron Fist, Jessica Jones, Runaways, etc. Now, to me, I'd still consider them canon. I think those shows add more to the universe than they take away. By They add more to the universe by being part of it than they take away by not being there. Um... I mean, it's a personal opinion. Uh, like I said, I've seen most of these shows. I watch them all as part of a, a Marvel Universe marathon, and they do tie in. The reason a lot of people seem to suggest as to why they might not be canon is Kevin Feige has no real involvement in them, and any references occur only one way between the, f the shows to the films, never from the films to the shows, with... One exception in Avengers Endgame, which features a cameo from uh, Edwin Jarvis, played by the same actor who I've unfortunately forgotten the name of now, um, who played him in Agent Carter. So, people, without the, because these shows were created without the influence of Kevin Feige... Um, and Marvel is now making its own shows, and the reporting by several media outlets has been that the existing shows are now non-canon, usually from them skewing some quote from Feige or another Marvel executive. The, a lot of people now take the approach that those shows aren't canon, which I don't think is fair to the shows themselves, the work that was put into them by the cast and crew, or to the the very definite um, focus made by the people involved to make them part of Marvel Universe canon. And, you know, there's plenty of people out there who have worked out the timeline for all these shows. There's the, the amazingly talented people on the uh, MCU wikia, um, I think it's now called Fandom rather than Wikia, but the MCU fandom page. They have worked out the timeline for all of these shows, all of these films, and put them all in order. And they've used everything from, uh, you know, on-screen dates, uh, production dates, all the way through to phases of the moon to work out the exact timeline for all of these things. And the timeline works, it fits. So I think discrediting these shows as non-canon 
does more to hurt them and hurt the MCU as a whole by suggesting that there is almost less to the universe. You know, for me, watching it when I did my rewatch, part of the joy was going to... was in between watching the amazing films with the Avengers, seeing the dark, gritty things that were happening in the Marvel Netflix series with Daredevil, Luke Cage, Jessica Jones, knowing that there were other super-powered individuals out there in the world. And some of them did tie together very well. For example, Jessica Jones, um, season two especially, posits um, almost a super soldier experiment or a similar sort of an experiment to create superpowers in people. That easily fits as part of the MCU. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. had the um, the appearances of Inhumans around the world. Which, again, fits really well within the canon. You know, you have lines from Vision in Civil War saying, since Tony Stark outed himself as Iron Man, the appearance of superpowered individuals has increased tenfold and you know exponentially i think is the word he actually uses that a line like that doesn't quite fit if you're only looking at the films because there aren't that many superpowered individuals on earth however if you look at you know the headlines for daredevil if you look at the agents of shield and the inhuman explosion that they're dealing with then it really fits it's like, yes, this is a world where more and more superhuman characters are appearing. Personally, I think your view on whether those shows are still canon is down to you. Personally, I think they do add more to the universe. And I will continue to treat them as canon unless anything in upcoming projects directly contradicts them. But from what I've seen instead, most things coming up are suggesting that they are still canon. There's a rumour that Charlie Cox was reprising his role as Daredevil in the next Spider-Man film. There's also a rumour that two of the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. will be returning in the same Spider-Man film. So, Kevin Feige, as much as he had no direct involvement in these shows, definitely seems to acknowledge that these shows have their own fans. And whatever he decides to do with the characters, you know, if characters are recast or their backstories changed or it's a deliberately said, nope, these shows are not canon, I'm still going to treat them as they are until they're not. But let's look at something. Now, the next fandom we're going to look at uh, when discussing canon, and it's one that has a quite a complicated relationship with canon as a fandom, is Star Trek. Star Trek obviously began in 1966. Um, by It was originated by Gene Roddenberry, uh, as well as uh, a team of writers that he had around him, including such names as DC Fontana and Gene Kuhn. It focused on the USS Enterprise... Um, a starship under the command of, originally, uh, Captain Christopher Pike, who appeared in the unaired pilot uh, 
played by Jeffrey Hunter, and later with William Shatner as James T. Kirk. Star Trek was eventually cancelled um, on its third season um, before being brought back in the 80s um, along with by Gene Roddenberry but also with people such as Rick Berman and Michael Piller and it was brought back as Star Trek The Next Generation um, this now starring uh, Patrick Stewart as the Captain Jean-Luc Picard as well as a more ensemble cast um, something that had always been a part of Star Trek but while the original series tended to focus on the main three characters of Kirk, Spock and McCoy Star Trek The Next Generation very definitely had a, an ensemble approach with its entire cast uh, Gene Roddenberry eventually passed away um, while Star Trek Next Generation was on its fifth season um, there'd also been several movies by this point starring the original um, Star Trek crew that had begun in the 70s and uh, through to the 80s. The sixth film was in production. I think Gene Roddenberry had seen a cut of it but was not a huge fan of it. Um, and Star Trek Deep Space Nine, which would be the third show in the Star Trek franchise, was currently in pre-production stages. I think it was on casting by the time Gene Roddenberry passed. Deep Space Nine was later followed um, after the conclusion of Star Trek The Next Generation, um, two years later, by Star Trek Voyager, um, featuring the Captain Janeway, um, set in the Delta Quadrant of the galaxy. That was then followed by the prequel film, uh, sorry, the prequel series, Star Trek Enterprise, um, starring Scott Bakula as jo Captain Jonathan Archer. Eventually, Enterprise itself was cancelled. It became the first show to be cancelled since the original one and ended um, a consecutive 18 years on television for the Star Trek franchise. The film series had continued after the sixth film. There were four films starring the Next Generation cast, the final one of which were released in 2002, um, shortly before the cancellation of Enterprise, and was not incredibly successful. Star Trek as a franchise then lay dormant again for a while before being reinvigorated by, among other people, J.J. Abrams in 2009 with a reboot film simply titled Star Trek set in an alternate timeline which has since become known as the Kelvin timeline. A trilogy of films followed from that, um, Star Trek, Star Trek Into Darkness and Star Trek Beyond. Uh, Star Trek Beyond was the only one without J.J. Abrams' direct involvement. It was instead directed by Justin Lin, a director from the Fast and the Furious franchise. And it released timed with the franchise's 50th anniversary. There have since been a return of Star Trek to... I want to say to television, but it's not technically. It's to streaming services. Um, CBS Access in America. And over here in the UK, Netflix and Amazon Prime. With Star Trek Discovery. Uh, which is now gearing up for its fourth season to release. I think that's currently filming at the minute. Star Trek Picard, which is currently filming its second and third seasons consecutively. And... 
Star Trek Lower Decks, which is an animated show. Um, not the first foray of Star Trek into animation, but we'll get to that in a minute. And Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which is a spin-off from Star Trek Discovery featuring Captain Pike and a younger version of Spock, as well as their crew on the original Enterprise in the 23rd century before Kirk. So, that's a brief history of the Star Trek franchise. Now, there's several... There's, there's more to the Star Trek franchise as well. There's also comics, novels, um, a range of different tie-in media, including video games. Um, now, there's multiple views on canon within the Star Trek franchise. The minority opinion... Uh, sorry, the, the, I'll start with, not with the minority opinion, let's start with the major opinion. The major opinion is that anything that made it on screen in Star Trek is canon. So the canon body of work described in Star Trek would then be the original series, the animated series, the films, all of them, 13 there are in total, all of Star Trek The Next Generation, all of Deep Space Nine, all of Voyager, all of Enterprise, all of Discovery, all of Picard, all of Lower Decks, all of um, Strange New Worlds when it eventually airs, etc. That's the general consensus. However, it wasn't always like that. For a large period of time, Star Trek the Animated Series, which was a revival in the 70s, um, created by Filmation, um, I think was overseen by Gene Roddenberry and some of the original writing team. I know DC Fontana contributed at least one episode for it. The consensus behind the animated series was that it wasn't considered Star Trek for a very, very long time. One of the main reasons it's considered canon now is mainly due to the impact of Star Trek Lower Decks, another animated series. Originally, the consensus was that anything that was live-action Star Trek counted, uh, so therefore the animated series didn't. However, since then, we've had not only a couple of animated Star Trek short treks, which are generally considered canon, um, they're the supporting um, shorts that accompany the modern Star Trek shows. Um, a couple of the animated ones, the animated one I'm thinking of, uh, Ephraim and Dot, for that one is beautiful, actually. It's very well worth a watch. Um, but yes, that's generally considered canon. As a result, so is Star Trek Lower Decks, despite its uh, tonal changes from the main Star Trek shows. So now the animated series is considered canon again, which I think is for the better. The animated series did have some very good ideas. Up until now, um, one episode of the animated series was considered canon, um, featuring, as it does, um, flashbacks to the early life of Spock. Um, it was an episode called Yesteryear. And that one has always generally been considered canon. 
I think, elements of what it adds to Vulcan, to Spock's life, to the character of Spock and Sarek, Sarek being his father, has generally always been accepted as canon. I think it's even been referenced in later works such as the films. So that episode was always considered loosely canon. So, so um, you may have noticed that obviously this leaves out a lot of the tie-in media. So the novels, the video games, the comics are obviously left out from this consideration of what makes Star Trek canon. And yeah, so those shows and uh, the, the shows were considered canon, the films were considered canon, but none of the novels were. Now, a lot of those novels um, were just extra adventures um, of the crews. You know, events that we didn't see on screen, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. However, towards the end of uh, Pocket Books, I believe it was, who was publishing at the time. They may still be, I'm not sure. Towards the end of their tenure, after certain Star Trek shows started to end in the 90s, they engaged in what was called relaunches. The most prominent one being with um, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, but they've later done it with the other shows. Now, in-universe, the Star Trek timeline has changed um, several times. Um, actually, before I get into that, um, obviously the, the body of works that are considered canon, there are inconsistencies within that canon. Um, there's several early episodes of The Next Generation where they refer not to the United Federation of Planets, but to a United Earth space program um, that the Enterprise is part of. So that early canon was definitely evolving. Um, Next Generation, I think, in the pilot episode... Data makes reference to graduating in the class of 93, um, suggesting that the next generation was originally considered to take place earlier in the 24th century than when it eventually ended up, which was 2464, uh, 2364, sorry. And obviously Data didn't graduate, you know, 70 years ago. So there were... You know, that now becomes a, an inconsistency. And there's several inconsistencies like that as the the shows gradually found their footing and a more concrete canon became established throughout the Next Generation era, as it's now considered. Um, so, yeah, the Next Generation era is the 24th century. Um, Star Trek The Next Generation starts in 2364, and each subsequent year becomes a season of one of the ongoing shows. So um, Next Generation airs for seven seasons, and then Voyager airs for seven seasons. So they take place over a 14-year time span. Deep Space Nine starts roughly concurrent with the sixth season of Star Trek The Next Generation, and ends bef uh, roughly concurrent with the fifth season of Star Trek Voyager. So that covers other events within that time period. 
Now, what the novels did with their relaunch was when shows... They didn't do it so much with Next Generation because the Next Generation cast was going to the films. So they waited until the films were out before they started doing books set around those films. But with Deep Space Nine, Deep Space Nine was a very plot-heavy show. There was a lot of very good character arcs. It was almost a precursor to the modern serialization techniques that we see in storytelling. Where the events of one episode will directly impact either the subsequent or future episodes. Now, you could still watch it out of order, but characters would change across the seasons. There would be plot lines that would last, um, eventually culminating in a war towards the end of the seasons. Uh, the final two years were focused on a Dominion War against the alien race, uh, the alien empire, the Dominion. The thing is, while Deep Space Nine went to great efforts in its final season to conclude as many of the plot lines as they could, and they really did, the most other Star Trek shows have a single episode finale, usually a feature episode, Deep Space Nine actually has a, a story arc of the final feature episodes and eight episode the final feature length episode and eight episodes before that, which wrap up the majority of plot lines, not just for the Dominion War, but a lot of the main character arcs. So the final episode not only ends the war, it also splits the cast up. It's it's very definitely an ending, and it was planned as such. And it's a very, very good arc. However, there are certain plot threads from the series that do remain unaddressed. So what Pocketbooks did, um, under the lead of, I want to say, Marco Palmieri, and I believe David Ward, is they got together a group to work on a Deep Space Nine relaunch. Obviously being aware that the Voyager books would be running alongside and there were subsequent films coming for the Next Generation series. So they added new characters to um, the cast of Deep Space Nine and created a new interconnected series of books where each book would have plot threads or story arcs that would lead into the next book in a similar way to how the show did. And I've read some of them and they are very, very good and they almost work as a season eight of Deep Space Nine. Now, to some people, they would consider that relaunch canon. The thing is that relaunch also impacts a lot of the other books that were coming out at the time. Um, Pocket Books uh, had not long before that done a series called The New Frontier, um, which was a their attempt at creating... It was led by Peter David, um, who is a phenomenal writer at doing long-running character arcs. He's worked on... He wrote The Hulk for Marvel for several years. He also wrote uh, X Factor at Marvel Comics and several other books all over the place. Very, very good writer. He did a series called The New Frontier. The New Frontier focused on 
mainly original characters, but with several minor supporting characters from the Next Generation era. And the goal of that series was to create almost... It was Pocket Books' attempt to create almost their own Star Trek show, but as a book, as a novel series, to create a unique property without the other Star Trek um, shows impacting it. And the New Frontier book series ran for ran uh, well over a dozen novels, so it was definitely successful. And like I said, it focuses on a uh, a, a new group of characters, puts them in a, a small section of space. It does a, a generally a very good job. Now, it just adds to the shared universe of the Next Generation era. Uh, obviously, as do the, the Next Generation books and the Deep Space Nine relaunch. There's a lot of crossover between them. Certain supporting characters, certain things they do to different alien races to elaborate on them. But yeah, it's generally, generally very good stuff. And obviously while Star Trek was off the air, those novels continued to evolve. They ended up, I think the final on-screen um date in Star Trek is, uh, at the time, was Star Trek Nemesis, which is 2379. The novels continued up until 2384, I believe, um, continuing the stories of the new Deep Space Nine cast, uh, some new Voyager characters that they created, and the new characters on The Next Generation, um, as well as New Frontier and a few other books that were intercut with that. Uh, and their other characters. They did a crossover, um, which is generally quite beloved from what I've seen, called Star Trek Destiny. Um, it was a trilogy of novels featuring um, Riker on his own ship, the Titan. Um, the Captain Picard on the Enterprise, and Esri Dax, who had now become captain of the ship called the Avatine, as they dealt with a Borg invasion into the Alpha and Beta Quadrants. Um, the Borg attacked a lot of worlds, including Earth, Kronos, the Klingon homeworld, Romulus, and many, many supporting characters from different novels throughout these books were involved in that story. A lot of them died or, or were assimilated. There was definite repercussions across the the Star Trek universe, or at least the universe of the Pocket Books novels, which make it generally quite beloved by fans. But none of it is canon, because the new series that were um that have been made Discredit that canon completely. <laughs> so, Star Trek Destiny, the Borg invasion, has clearly not happened by the time of Star Trek Picard, which is set in 2399. So, um, it, it can't have occurred anymore. <laughs> 
obviously some things could have, but it's the general consensus is that no, those books are no longer canon um, because they were contradicted by later canon materials. However, there's also a minority, well, not a minority, quite a, a large group of Star Trek fans who insist that the modern Trek shows are not canon. These aren't necessarily fans of the novels either. They don't necessarily consider those canon either. But they will argue that... They will argue that Discovery, um, which when it first aired, was set ten years before the time of Captain Kirk, but features several distinct differences to the original series. Um, they would argue that that isn't canon. For example, its depiction of Klingons. Um, the Klingon makeup generally gets changed and added to with every iteration of Star Trek. So in the original series, they looked almost human. Um, there was the Fu Manchu style moustaches that they used to wear. There was a lot of Cold War undertones with the way the Klingons acted. Um, but yeah, they, they had an ethnic look to them, but looked almost human. After Star Trek The Motion Picture in the 70s, obviously the bigger budget allowed for a development of actual Klingon makeup. This is where they got the, the head ridges that are known in pop culture as being Klingon. They also, then when Next Generation aired, got given a, a warrior culture, um, which hadn't really been evident before. Um, that then carried on, on throughout the Next Generation era. Um, like I said, that's the, the Klingon that is generally known of in pop culture. Um, not even pop culture, in mainstream culture. The the things from Star Trek is a, is an ubiquitous franchise. A lot of the things in it are very well known, even beyond geek culture. <laughs> so the Klingons are one of them. Now, the Klingons in Star Trek Discovery were given a much more dramatic makeup than had ever been seen before. A lot of them were missing hair. The ridges had, what were previously just forehead ridges, had now become almost like a, a crustacean style armor across most of their visible skin. The armor that they wore into battle had changed from leather and metal plates to almost an organic looking armored suit. Even there were even cultural changes. And this also culminated in a war with the Federation, um, kick-started throughout that first season of Star Trek Discovery. Now, with the res this, along with some other things that were suggested by Star Trek Discovery, lead to a lot of fans to declare that no, it isn't canon. Or it doesn't take place in the same universe as before. 
Um, one of the main changes is the main character of Michael Burnham being the adopted human sister of Spock. Despite the fact that Spock has never mentioned a sister. Michael Burnham leading a mutiny on the USS Shenzo. Despite a line from in the original series from Spock saying that there has never been a mutiny on a Federation starship. So yeah, there's a lot of inconsistencies. And it was always wondered what would happen. How this would be explained. And eventually it was. It was explained in Star Trek season... Uh, Star Trek Discovery Season 2, where it was explained that um, Discovery was classified, like the very existence of the USS Discovery was classified. The ship was sent forward into the future and nothing was spoken about it. All records were sealed. As a result, um, Spock never mentions his sister. The Discovery's actions in the Klingon War are never documented. The experimental spore drive that the Discovery used to hop around the galaxy is classified by Starfleet and never never, never used again, never mentioned again. So, there's an, an, an attempt to address the canon. Star Trek Enterprise did some something similar. Um, they had did some episodes in their fourth season to explain how the Klingons went from the the head ridges that were used in earlier episodes of Star Trek Enterprise to the plain forehead human look that was used in the original series. Um, Enterprise itself was also considered non-canon at the time. Um, by a lot of fans due to its more updated technological look. Now, that's simply because it was made in the early 2000s and our view of what the future looks like is very different from the view in the 1960s. Um, you know, some of the technology that was sci-fi in the 60s or 80s is now every day. We have mobile phones and touchscreens and things like that, in many cases in real life, inspired by things that were seen on Star Trek. So, yeah, the development has... The development is an interesting one. Um, but people will use the, the minor inconsistencies like that to explain it away as non-canon. Um, Star Trek Discovery Season 2 didn't help that by showing an updated version of the original USS Enterprise, again, before Kirk, with a suggestion that this is going to be the Enterprise that's used in Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which suggests that it will be different from what we've seen before in previous Star Trek. So a lot of people then look at that and go, well, that can't possibly be canon then. Strange New Worlds and Discovery can't possibly be canon because look how different the ship is. But as I said, that's just uh, behind-the-scenes production because 
our view of the future is so so much different to you know what it was in the 60s because technology that was science fiction in the in the 60s is now very much real very much accurate things like a, a view screen to have a conversation with someone you know half a galaxy away or half a world away we can do things like that in the modern day now with our phones we can we can contact people across the world and have a live face-to-face -face discussion with them so yeah star trek canon is an interesting one and what people think of as canon is interesting and i haven't even got to the the original minority that i mentioned a while ago there is a minority of fans and when i say a minority it is a small minority there is a minority of fans who consider that the only thing officially canon star trek is something that was worked on by gene roddenberry as i said gene roddenberry um was not a fan of the original cut of Star Trek VI that he saw. Um, he was aware of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, but obviously died before it premiered. He died partway through Star Trek Next Generation's fifth season, um, with one of the episodes in that season actually paying tribute to him. So... Yeah, it's the idea that only things touched by Gene Roddenberry are canon is an interesting one, especially when most of the most famous things for Star Trek do not come from Gene Roddenberry. Gene Roddenberry is a complicated individual, but, but Gene Roddenberry's contribution to Star Trek isn't as much as people think. Most of the more famous things in, in popular culture that come from Star Trek, for example, the Vulcans and their idea of a lack of emotion and logic, or the Klingons and their warrior culture, those come from other writers, the most prominent being uh, Gene Kuhn, but also DC Fontana. Um, the other writers that were assembled by Gene Roddenberry. In fact, a lot of the most beloved items of the Star Trek canon had very, very little involvement from Gene Roddenberry himself. Um, a good example would be Star Trek The Wrath of Khan. Gene Roddenberry oversaw production of the original Star Trek motion picture, which was a very visually interesting film, but is also has the much derided name of Star Trek, the slow motion picture, because it is very, very slow. <laughs> it takes a while to do anything. It's overly long. It's very pretty, but doesn't really do much. As a result, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, took an approach that was very much without Gene Roddenberry's influence. He was kept on as a consultant, but 
he actually contributed very, very little to the final product. Same for Star Trek III and Star Trek IV, with which he also served as a consultant. So, and then obviously, like I said, things like Deep Space Nine, which is generally considered one of the best shows in the Star Trek franchise by a lot of fans, definitely the one that I think has aged the most, uh, aged, aged the best out of them. That was created with very, very minor involvement from Gene Roddenberry in its initial planning stages, with most of it airing long after he died and being the the brainchild of its own showrunner, Ira Stephen Bear, and the writing team that he assembled around him, um, including Ronald D. Moore, who would later go on to write the new Battlestar Galactica series in 2003. So... To argue that the only Star Trek that is canon is Star Trek that comes from Gene Roddenberry, I mean, there's a reason it's a minority opinion, because it invalidates so much of Star Trek and removes most of the best of Star Trek. You know, in to my humble take, uh, counting only as it does most of the original series, the first film... I think you could you could argue the other f the next four, but definitely I think only the first one, Star Trek the animated series, and the first four seasons of Next Generation, maybe the fifth, and then maybe the first season of Deep Space Nine, and that's it. And while there are definitely very very good things in those, I mean. Some of Star Trek Next Generation's best episodes come in Season 3, Season 4, and Season 5. Um, and obviously the original Star Trek has many, many episodes that are very well known and very beloved and a part of popular culture. But a lot of them don't come directly from Roddenberry himself. They come from the team that he assembled around him. And some of the episodes that actually come from Gene Roddenberry can be problematic. Um, so, yeah. You'll notice that a lot of this discussion around canon... Um, as well, tends to come from the people involved. Star Trek has always been a, a cumulative effort, so to suggest that it only it only only what Gene Roddenberry was involved in counts dismisses so much of Star Trek. I, I can understand people doing it with the MCU with Kevin Feige and saying that the, well, the films and the new series that Feige is directly involved with count, but other stuff doesn't. Okay, I can kind of see that. Um, you know, due to his heavy involvement in the early films. Well, in the film series in general. But for to try and attribute all of Star Trek to Gene Roddenberry when so many people have made Star Trek what it is throughout the years. You know, not just Gene Roddenberry, but Gene Kuhn, DC Fontana, Rick Berman, Brian Umbraga, um, Iris Stephen Bear, Michael Piller, 
Ronald Moore, Jerry Ryan, not Jerry Ryan, that's um, Jerry Taylor, the writer. Jerry Ryan is the actress who played Seven of Nine. Um, you know, or, or even the modern showrunners that behind the series, I've, I've be honest i've completely forgotten a lot of their names jj abrams as well for the kelvin timeline films to say that only gene roddenberry's view counts invalidates so much work and i don't think is fair to even the spirit of star trek which is that cooperation is what helps us all and what brings us all together and leads to this better future so you can't invalidate that cooperation because yeah Star Trek should be a collaborative effort because it's the whole core of the franchise to me so yes while I think some things in Star Trek not being canon um, perhaps hurts some very interesting stories that can be told within the medium for example I'm a huge fan myself of the Star Trek online game um, which has its own canon, uh, which disregards the pocketbooks, but does add its own things and its own ideas. And it is trying to add elements from Discovery and Picard to that existing timeline. Some with better success than others. Um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm a fan of that game. I'm a lifetime subscriber to that game. And I quite like some of the things that it has added to Star Trek, but I understand it's not canon. Um, in the same way that the pocket books aren't canon. And, you know, there are things in the current shows which will remove what I like about, you know, some, some elements from that I like from Star Trek Online from current canon. But I'm actually fine with that. That makes sense. Um, but to me, that doesn't stop Star Trek Online or the pocketbooks being enjoyable stories. Interesting takes on the idea of Star Trek. Especially as Star Trek, like many, many shows, um, incorporates a multiverse. Like many geek fandoms. Um, so, you know, that most prominently in the use of its Kelvin timeline, which is a parallel universe. And several episodes have touched on the idea, such as the, the mirror universe. So you could argue that from a multiversal aspect, all of it is canon. Every game, Star Trek Online, the pocketbooks, the new shows, it's all canon. Which I think is a nice way of looking at it. So, the final franchise I want to talk about um, with regards to canon, purely because I thought that this franchise had always had a very interesting way of handling what was canon and wasn't canon, is Star Wars. Now, before its acquisition by Disney a few years back, um, Star Wars was owned by Lucasfilm. Uh, Lucasfilm... The original Star Wars movies were made in the 70s uh, through to the 80s. So 77 through to the 80s. Then the prequel trilogy 
came later in the 90s and early 2000s, late 1999, the first one. However, in the period in between the films, there were multiple attempts at continuing the story of Star Wars. Um, met with various levels of success. There was a tie-in comic series produced by Marvel Comics. There were limited-run graphic novels, uh, such as The Splinter of the Mind's Eye. There were spin-off films featuring the Ewoks, cartoon series featuring C-3PO and R2-D2, uh, most of which are now available on Disney Plus under their Star Wars Legends banner. And the most famous example was the Star Wars novels. I believe they were published by, I want to say Bantam Books. I'm not entirely sure which was the first one. I believe the first series was what's known as, I believe it's the Heir to the Empire series. It's been a long time since I've read it. By um, Timothy Zahn. Now, this series was set five years after Return of the Jedi. It featured several new characters who became prominent in the ongoing storyline that would come up of the expanded universe, as it was called. Um, there was a politician named Borsk Falea, who I believe was added in this series and became a major character in the uh, fledgling New Republic that had formed after the collapse of the Empire. There was Mara Jade, a former, not Sith, she would have been an Imperial Assassin. She was described as the Emperor's Hand. She was a Force user. Um, and yes, yeah, young woman, she was about Luke Skywalker's age, if not slightly younger. I think she was said to be around 16 during the time of Return of the Jedi. So she was raised as an indoctrinated assassin by the Emperor. Um, and the most prominent example from this series was Grand Admiral Thrawn, um, a character who has since returned to canon under Disney, um, played by Lars Mikkelsen, I want to say, in Star Wars Rebels. Now, Heir to the Empire, there was a trilogy of books featuring these characters and the story, um, it then prompted more works set within the Star Wars uh, universe after the original films and some during the original films as well. Uh, not really anything in a prequel sense, however, um, purely because it was generally accepted that George Lucas wanted to do something within that time frame and they didn't want to... Um, do anything to overrule that however George Lucas had originally planned a sequel trilogy as well um, but I think he'd stepped away from that idea at this point now the expanded universe for Star Wars introduced a lot of very very great concepts um, the timeline for it like I said the original Heir to the Empire books are five years after Return of the Jedi. I think by the time the universe was acquired by Disney. It was about. That the main universe stories were about four, 30 to 40 years. 
after Return of the Jedi. Um, or at least 40 years after the original Star Wars. And there were also comic series uh, that had gone as far as 5,000 years before the original trilogy and uh, over 150 years after the original trilogy. Now, this isn't to say that all of it was good. There was a lot... Uh, the Expanded Universe has a lot of great stories in. It also has some very bizarre stories in. Um, but after a certain point um, in the production of the expanded works of Star Wars, it became very clear to Lucasfilm that there was marketability here, that people were interested in it, and that people were interested in the timeline of what was happening. So the books started to be published with a timeline um, that would say when books that had previously been published and books that were upcoming fit in that timeline, saying that they were however many years after Star Wars, however many years after Return of the Jedi. And the series eventually started to use a dating system based around the Battle of Yavin from the first Star Wars movie, um, which was incorporated as part of their canon. One person ended up taking on the job to organise Star Wars canon on the official Star Wars website, which used to publish um, details, uh, like published... It was almost like a Wikipedia, like a, the, the Wikia pages that you see nowadays, except it was officially hosted by Star Wars. And the person responsible for that was a man called Leland Chi, who had the very, very impressive job title of Keeper of the Holocron. Basically meant he was responsible for organising Star Wars canon, which is a hell of a job. Now, as I said, you've got a continuing universe um, featuring the characters from the films, as well as new characters that were added in, um, including eventually the children of Han Solo and Leia, as well as the students of Luke Skywalker's Jedi Temple. Several of the ranking Imperial officers who had served under the Empire. And eventually some very, very interesting ideas, such as a extra-galactic race known as the Yuuzhan Vong, who came from beyond the galaxy, used living technology and were immune to the Force. Um, they were part of the New Jedi Order series, which by the time the New Jedi Order um, was created, the s s disparate authors were working together to create um, a combined series. So it was a series that was planned out from the start and featured several notable character deaths. I'm a large fan of the New Jedi Order. I know... Many other people in the fandom are not, um, but I am. I think it gave a lot of focus to some uh, characters who had been underserved before and created some very, very interesting ideas. But beyond that, there was also an exploration of plenty of other characters. We got to see um, the origins of characters like Boba Fett. Um, well... 
as they were. It was him training with Mandalorians. Um, we also got to see ideas such as, um, for example, there was a book series known as the Tales, Tales from the Moss Eisley Cantina, and there was also a Tales from Jabba's Palace. Basically, books like that took all the background characters um, who obviously only have seconds of screen time, but are very noticeable for how they look um, in either the Mos Eisley Cantina in the original Star Wars or in Jabba's Palace in um, uh, Return of the Jedi, and gave them their own backstories, their own adventures. Uh, in many cases, this is where a lot of characters got their names and their origins, um, which would then lead into... Uh, toy lines as well, because obviously Star Wars, Star Wars has one of the most prolific toy lines in history. And as I said, most of this came about before the prequels were in serious development. For example, um, there was one point um, where uh, a project known as Shadows of the Empire was created. Now, Shadows of the Empire takes place in between Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. Features Luke, Leia, Lando, Boba Fett, and several other characters um, fighting a criminal organization led by a character named Prince Zizor. Now, the beauty of um, Shadows of the Empire was it was designed as a multimedia project. By which I mean there's a novel, there's, I believe, an audio drama or an audio book, a graphic novel or a limited-run comic series. I believe it was produced by Dark Horse, who owned the Star Wars license for a long time after Marvel. And there was also a video game. Now, each of these told the main story of the series, Shadows of the Empire. However, each medium also focused on unique plots that didn't appear in the others. For example, the character of Dash Rendar was introduced in the series. He became the central protagonist of the game. He was essentially a, a bounty hunter type character, a bounty hunter smuggler type character, who replaced Han Solo in the narrative. Um, due to Han Solo being frozen in carbonite in Jabba's palace. Most of the scenes featuring Dash Rendar only appear in the video game. Boba Fett was a main character in the comic book, being chased by the other bounty hunters from The Empire Strikes Back, um, as he tried to deliver Han Solo to Jabba's palace. His adventures only appear in the graphic novel. So it's a very interesting idea. Um, and obviously all of those takes were canon. They all covered the same story. Now, as I said, there was uh, an approach to canon with the Star Wars Expanded Universe that I really like. And what it was is that at some point it was designated that there were essentially tiers of canon. And very few things in Star Wars were considered non-canon. So most things are, are believed to be a part of that universe somewhere. Now, 
what it meant was that occasionally cannon might clash. And if cannon ever clashed, the superior tier of cannon took precedence. So what I mean by the tiers was that the, the primary tier was what they called G cannon. And G cannon would be anything that came from something that George Lucas was directly involved with. So, for example, the Star Wars films were pinnacle G canon. George Lucas was involved with them, and he had never specifically disavowed them. They were always considered part of canon. As a result, they superseded everything else. So, if there was a canon clash that between an existing work and something George Lucas had created... This became more apparent when the prequels actually went into production. The prequels were considered to take precedence. Below that, you then had um, several other layers of canon. I've forgotten them all at the minute. I'll try and remember. Um, they did add a secondary tier, which became television canon. Now, television canon got added when the Clone Wars series went into production. Um, shortly before... Well, in the few years before the Disney buyout um, that the Clone Wars was on the air. Because the issue there became that anything that Clone Wars did that contradicted any existing novels, because George Lucas was involved with the Clone Wars, however not directly overseeing production in the same way that he did with the movies, the TV series was considered to be the canon. This actually led to a couple of authors leaving um, Lucas, their involvement with the Star Wars property. Um, as a result of this, um, one particular author had been working on a series of Clone Wars books featuring the Mandalorians. And then when episodes of the Mandalorians that had been episodes of the Clone Wars that had been overseen by George Lucas changed the Mandalorians quite drastically from how they've been presented in Star Wars expanded media up until that point. Um, she left quite vocally um, because now essentially a lot of her books were being deemed not as canonical as she'd been led to believe while writing them. Uh, I, believe the, I believe it was Karen Travis, the author. So I want to say anyway. And yeah, she was very upset with that. And to be honest, I can't blame her. But I understand at the same time the changes that were made to the Mandalorians by Dave Filoni and George Lucas for the Clone Wars. And I do think they helped the development of the Mandalorians as a culture more than they detracted from it. Now, having said that, I haven't read... Um, the books for the Clone Wars that I'm that were clashed with. So, you know, if I was invested in that series, and then all of a sudden the Mandalorians change, I could understand being aggrieved as well. So yeah, the holocron of Star Wars contains everything in G canon. T-Canon, um, the main novel continuity, which was C-Canon, and then below that there were two other levels. Um, 
both of which were various degrees of non-canon. I have just looked all this up. This, this is why there's a. I'm now more confident in what I'm saying. Um, firstly, there was S canon. Now, S canon was considered secondary to standard continuity. Now, what that meant is that was things that were not necessarily non-canon, but could be used by authors or even George Lucas if they wanted to. For example, George Lucas did make a lot of things from uh, main continuity canon, things from the novels and comics canon, by incorporating them in films, either via um, changes and additions made to the original Star Wars trilogy for the special editions or DVD releases, um, or incorporating them in the prequels. For example, there's a Jedi character named Ayla Secura. Um, she's a blue Twi'lek Jedi. Uh, she was played by a model in Episode 2 and Episode 3. Um, she's quite famous for getting shot in the back during the Order 66 scene um, in Episode 3. Now, she originally appeared in a comic book, so she was a C-continuity character who George Lucas liked the look of and incorporated her into Episode 2. Um, Coruscant, the actual name of the planet Coruscant, was something that came from Z-Canon and was then heavily used in the prequels. Um, Dash Rendar's ship from um, Shadows of the Empire appears in um, the special editions of the original Star Wars in 1997. You can see it taking off from Mos Eisley when Luke Skywalker speeds into the city uh, with Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um, secondary canon worked in the same way. Now, secondary canon would have been things like um, the old Marvel Star Wars title. Now, the Marvel Star Wars title um, was created while the films were being made. <laughs> um, and so there were story arcs set in between the release of Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back that don't hold up <laughs> in terms of modern continuity. They're they were an inter interesting view of the story, but there's some very bizarre choices in there. For example, there's a character called Jackson, who is a six-foot-tall green rabbit in a red spacesuit, um, who ended up becoming a like a comic relief sidekick for Han Solo. There's also a talking tree. There's some. Um, very bizarre, lots of very, very bizarre alien ideas uh, and metaphysical stuff going on. Lots of weirdness. Um, and obviously some of that was used in the novels. For example, I think Jackson himself, I don't think ever was made canon. But the idea of his race, I think, was incorporated somewhere in one of the books. Um And other minor characters from the Marvel Star Wars series reappeared. Um, and obviously the main thing that George Lucas himself declared non-canon, which would be the Star Wars Holiday Special, um, was technically S-canon. Now, the Holiday Special features the first appearance of Chewbacca's family and Boba Fett, 
Boba Fett eventually was obviously incorporated into the main film series and Chewbacca's family um, were incorporated into the novel series. And then finally under that you had things that were explicitly deemed non-canon. Now non-canon generally referred to uh, things in the video games usually games such as Knights of the Old Republic which would give you story choices um, so for example in Knights of the Old Republic um, the player character um, has the option of joining the Jedi or joining the Sith at the end of the game if you join the Sith that is non-canon it d doesn't affect... It's not canonical to Star Wars. You could also choose, for example, in Knights of the Old Republic, whether your character would be male or female. Um, and there were romance options associated with that. Now, the character from that game is canonically, because they reappear in a, a sequel, canonically male. As a result, the female choice, and therefore the female romance option, is non-canon. So that's a, an example of where canon sits in Star Wars. But as I said, it was all counted as part of the holocron, uh, and Lean and Chi's job was to maintain this as the keeper of the holocron. And he actually stated at one point that... The best way to look at the Star Wars canon under the Holocron was using the key words that are at the start of all the Star Wars films, which are in a long time ago a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Essentially, the idea is that Star Wars is stories being told years after the fact, um, in the same way that we would tell uh, Greek myths or stories of King Arthur. So it's myths and legends. So stories can be, all be retold in different ways. So essentially it's all canon, but in terms of it all being stories, but not all of the stories are necessarily accurate. They're not... Some stories will have an unreliable narrator. Is the best way to look at it. However, the Holocron soon came to an end. In 2014, I think it was a year after Disney had bought Star Wars. Um, they announced that they were ending the Expanded Universe. And as I said, I, I do think that's a shame. I think there's there's a lot of very, very good stories in the expanded universe there are some some stories that are not so great but there are plenty i would recommend if you're interested in reading any of the expanded universe uh i would recommend the I don't know, what would i pick as my highlights heir to the empire trilogy by timothy zahn definitely um Shadows of the Empire, ideally the novel, if you can get it, but the comic book also works very well. 
the new Jedi Order series, although bear in mind at first you may be a little lost without checking how some of those char extra characters are. Characters like Kip Durren, for example, or Mara Jade, you might want a prior introduction to first. Um, Kip Durren appears in the, the Jedi Search trilogy as his primary, primary appearance. Um... But I do think the new Jedi Order series is definitely one of the best. It's filled with some absolutely epic, epic moments. Um, and there's a lot of very good Jedi characters. Like I said, the tragic deaths of some amazing characters, including some characters who date back to the films. Um, and I'd probably also recommend the Knights of the Old Republic game. Um, definitely by Bioware. It's a phenomenal game. Um, I don't even want to name the main character, um, but it does feature... Yeah, it, it features a character called Darth Revan, who a lot of people like to mention as being back in canon because a ship in Rise of Skywalker was named after him. But I'll get to that in a minute. Um, I also recommend the Darth, Darth Bane books. Uh, Path of Two, I believe it was. Oh, no, Rule of Two, not Path of Two. Rule of Two. That's a very good book. And the Star Wars Legacy comic series. Again, I'm a quite a large fan of that one. Um, featuring Cade Skywalker, who is Luke's descendant and is a bounty hunter trying to hide his Jedi heritage in an empire ruled by the Sith. That's a very, very good one. So yeah, those are some choice recommendations from me <laughs> um, for anyone interested in the old expanded universe. But moving on, what did Disney do with Star Wars? Well, what Disney did with Star Wars was they decided to remove the old expanded universe. But essentially, they would treat the existing expanded universe in the same way that the Holocron used to treat S-canon, secondary canon. In that they could always pull from it and bring things into their own universe, but it wouldn't necessarily be the same as it was before. Uh, a good example for this is Admiral Thrawn, who, like I said, they've used in the Star Wars Rebels cartoon series. Now, uh, Thrawn is not the same character. Well, he's the same character, but he doesn't necessarily have the same backstory or uh, take part in the same events as he did previously. Which is interesting. Um, a lot of the characters in... A lot of the history of the Republic is very different as well. Um, the original Expanded Universe explored the origins of the Republic, uh, the origins of the whole Star Wars universe, dating back, like I said, thousands and thousands of years um, to the origin of the Jedi uh, 20,000 years ago. You know, so... All of that is being 
covered and changed and adapted in different ways. So while there was a disregard for the old canon, but there was something else which was a, a more dedicated focus on canon going forward. Um, Disney basically wanted new novels, new comic series uh, produced by Marvel Comics again, and new television shows, as well as new films, all of which would work together as a new collaborative canon. There were also new games as well, but um, the license was given to EA, and the best examples we've had were, um, well, there's Jedi Fallen Order, which came out to great success, but for a long time the best examples we had were the Star Wars Battlefront games, which were not amazing. Now, the comics by Marvel were generally very good. They seem to be set sort of alongside the original trilogy, um, but there are several spin-offs um, taking place afterwards in the lead-up to a lot of Disney's newer movies. The novel series tends to... Like, the first... The first major works... Um, included, well, one of the first major works was an Aftermath trilogy created by Chuck Wendig. Now, Aftermath serves a similar sort of narrative role to Zahn's Thrawn series um, with Heir to the Empire in that Aftermath takes place a few years. In fact, I don't even think it is a few years. I think it's relatively soon after Return of the Jedi and addresses those pivotal moments um, between the fall of the Empire and the rise of the Republic. And, again, from what I've seen of it, it's very, very interesting. It's, it's definitely good. It's an interesting take on the story. I think part of me is still a bit salty and bitter that the old EU was discarded, because I didn't enjoy it. I haven't enjoyed the new canon as much as I expected to, but there is some... There's definitely some good characters, some popular characters, some very interesting ideas. The only things that were kept from previously and considered canon were the Clone Wars TV series, which under Disney got a second, a seventh season. Um, and the uh, obviously the existing films. Now, Disney went ahead with new films um, and new TV series. There was the Rebels cartoon series. There's currently the Mandalorian series, which is doing phenomenally well. Um, in fact, the child character created for the Mandalorian, uh, known in pop culture as Baby Yoda, um, is probably the most universally loved thing by the Star Wars fandom since the first Star Wars film. <laughs> The Star Wars Star Wars fandom can be very bitter about a lot of these changes, um, uh, about a lot of things that exist. But yeah, Baby Yoda seems to be very, very beloved. The new films had middling success. I'm a big fan of The Last Jedi. I have yet to see Rise of Skywalker. I adored Rogue One, and Force Awakens was okay. 
I'm not interested in Solo <laughs> at all. I have no desire to see Rise of Skywalker because I've heard how much it disregarded from The Last Jedi. And as I said, I really enjoyed The Last Jedi, which is a controversial take in and of itself among the Star Wars fandom. I don't think the new trilogy, is, the new Star Wars canon is as good as the novels, but at the same time, the novels had a lot more development and a lot more years to build their story. Both in universe and in the real world. I'm sure I could warm to them, but yeah, I don't know. There's there's a lot of good ideas, but they're not necessarily the best. I I still prefer the old holocron, but again, you can use the same maxim of it's the same maxim that the holocron used to use, which is that it's all stories being told over history. So, but if that's the case, I think I prefer the old expanded universe to the current Disney one. But it'll be interesting to see where the future goes. There's definitely promise in Star Wars under Disney. I'm, as I said, I'm a big fan of The Mandalorian and a lot of Dave Filoni's work with uh, the seventh season of The Clone Wars, Star Wars Rebels, um, and the new Bad Batch show. So we'll see where everything goes. Um, I do think there's a lot of life left in the Star Wars property under Disney. And there's a lot of potential for growth there. I do just think that a lot of their plans at the minute haven't necessarily been as good because there does seem to be, while there's a focused collaborative effort on the part of the Lucasfilm story group between their work at Marvel, uh, the work with the novels, there does also seem to be a lack of a, a guide one thing you can say about um, my other examples with Marvel and Star Trek is there was a definite guide throughout most of the the projects. So, for example, with Marvel, the main guide through the films especially has been Kevin Feige. Um, the main guide through the television half was Jeff Loeb. Now, they didn't always meld together with their visions, but there was a definite guide between them. With Star Trek, obviously, in the early days, it was Gene Roddenberry and his writing group. Um, that then led through the Next Generation era to pass through people like Rick Berman. And then, obviously, in the modern Star Trek era, you've got Alex Kurtzman overseeing a lot of the production after having worked on the Kelvin timeline films with J.J. Abrams. Now, despite the fact that Discovery and Picard and Lower Decks and Strange New Worlds all have their own showrunners, there is someone kind of overseeing the whole thing moving forward. Now, Star Wars, when the novels originally started, there was no one necessarily overseeing them but everything still had to kind of go through George Lucas and Lucasfilm 
and there was a, a coordinated effort on the part of people like Leland Chi to connect it all together. I don't necessarily think Lucasfilm under Disney has had quite the same luck with this. Kathleen Kennedy has been the overseer of a lot of the films, but she seems somewhat separated from the rest of the work being put out by the story group. Um, I don't know how much... For example, I don't think she has a lot of impact in Dave Filoni's work with the TV shows or Jon Favreau's work with The Mandalorian. So... There are essentially separate projects. I do think there are signs that this may be changing. The most prominent example is the recently launched High Republic series. Now, High Republic is set as a prequel, uh, roughly 200 years before the prequel movies, so before The Phantom Menace, um, features among its characters a young Yoda, and it's sort of a, an anthology exploration of that era of the Republic. And when I say an anthology, what I mean is um, several novels will be conducting their own stories. Several comics will be conducting their own stories. And there's also a television series on the way. So this is working in a similar sort of way to Shadows of the Empire as being a, a multimedia anthology project. Um, Clone Wars, when it originally started in between episode 2 and episode 3 in the early 2000s, uh, not the Clone Wars series that everyone knows now, but the original cartoon micro-series, as well as the comic books and games that came out of that, did a similar sort of thing in trying to be a, a multimedia project uh, and, an, and an anthology, each telling different parts of the story. So... That's something that's worked for Star Wars twice before with Shadows of the Empire and the Clone Wars. And this is Disney's first real attempt at it. Um, with them being in control of Lucasfilm. And the early reviews seem to be that it's generally pretty good. So hopefully by returning to a more a more well-trodden ground in the history of the franchise, even though it's a, a relatively, you know, it's a completely new and unexplored area of the franchise at the same time, in terms of the in-universe franchise history. But in the, in the meta level, it's doing something that Star Wars has done to great success before. Hopefully, we'll be seeing something something good for the future of Star Wars and something that enlivens the franchise going forward. In conclusion, though, I think I want to kind of cover my thoughts on does canon really matter? Now, canon is something that geeks tend to consider quite important. And like I said, the discussion of what is and isn't canon can be can lead to some um, some heated debate. 
um, in geek circles, shall we say, and in fandoms especially. Now, I I want to be clear. I don't think, for example, in the case of Star Wars, let's say you have only seen the main Star Wars movies. Say you haven't even seen the new ones. Say you've only seen the original six, or even just the original trilogy. If you're a fan of Star Wars, if you're a fan of what you've seen, but you're not you're not aware of the whole canon, you not you don't know it inside and out like people like myself do. You or you, well, I wouldn't even say I know it inside and out, but you wouldn't, you don't know it into the depth that people like myself do. I wouldn't say that makes you any less of a fan. You can still be a fan of something without being even aware of the entire canon. And I also think canon can be a deeply personal thing. For example, um, the Star Wars Holocron used to count deleted scenes, provided they didn't clash with anything else, as canon. And I can do this, I do the same thing. If a deleted scene for something I like incorporates something that doesn't clash with anything else, and I like it as an idea, then I'll happily count that as part of my own headcanon. Um, headcanons can also include fan theories, you know, something that isn't explicitly in the medium itself. But if it doesn't clash with the medium, you can accept it as your own headcanon. For example, I know a lot of people who headcanon, despite it never explicitly being said in the show, that the character of Garrick in Star Trek Deep Space Nine is queer. And it's never explicitly said, but we also, it's never explicitly contradicted. And I believe Andrew Robinson, the actor who played Garrick, did say that he played the character as gay. Ira Stephen Bear, the showrunner, uh, admitted in the What We Leave Behind documentary that he wishes he'd um, treated Garrick as gay and explored a possible relationship between him and Dr. Bashir. The two actors during lockdown last year even did uh, like an online continuation of the story of Deep Space Nine where they had the two characters end up in a relationship. And it felt earned and believable because the fan theory of Garrick being gay, being queer, is in the work. It's It doesn't... The fan theory can be canon because it doesn't contradict the canon that we do have. So I think canon can be interesting. I think whatever you choose to have as canon is your canon. But I also don't think you have to be aware of all of canon to be a fan of something. And you don't have to accept anyone else's canon to be a fan of something. And not liking, not finding certain things as canon doesn't make you less of a fan. In fact, to me, I think that's a lot of the interesting debate that you can have with someone. 
for example, to go back to the Marvel Universe, plenty of fans will argue that the the existing Marvel television shows, which I believe there are 12 before you get to the Marvel Studios' recent efforts like Loki, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, WandaVision, etc. There's 12 previous shows. I would personally treat them as all canon because they were designed with the MCU in mind. But I know plenty of other people who won't. And... You know, there are people who won't treat Star Trek Discovery as canon. There are people who won't even treat Star Wars The Clone Wars as canon. But they're considered canon by the people working on them. They're considered canon by a lot of the fans. And I think the interesting... It can be interesting to discuss with someone why they don't necessarily think those things are canon. Sometimes the reason can be something flimsy, like, oh, the person who oversees most of the work, like Kevin Feige or Roddenberry or whatever, isn't involved. It's understandable. There can be reasons like, oh, I just I just don't like them. I just don't think they add anything. That's a more debatable one. It's a more objective one. There's no right or wrong answer. But yeah, personally, I think when it comes to canon, it shouldn't really matter to you. You should enjoy what you enjoy and as much of you as you want to enjoy of it. And I think we can get too attached to canon and wonder about whether something does clash. And then the question of canon can kind of overshadow other it can overshadow our enjoyment of it we can be so concerned with whether or not something is canon that we can forget to enjoy it on its own rise of skywalker for example while i've said i have no desire to see it a lot of the news articles that i saw about the film at the time it was released were discussions saying, oh, this is canon now. Because, for example, names of previous Sith Lords were used as the names of the Sith fleet. So, Revan, Bane, and Dedu, etc. And it's like, well, it doesn't make the previous works canon with the Disney things, because in some cases they can't be. But at the same time, yes, it's an interesting idea that those characters could be being used by Disney in some regard. But does that make Rise of Skywalker a better film just because it's put those things back into canon? If something like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or Daredevil is non-canon to the MCU... Does that make it worse? Is it possible to enjoy something like Star Trek Lower Decks on its own merit without wondering whether or not it's canon to Star Trek as a greater whole? So does canon really matter? I think it's up to you.
it's up to you how you view canon, how you view your fandoms, how you view the franchises that you follow as to what you see as canon and what your own personal head canon for something can be. So yeah, I leave it up to you. So, thank you all for joining me for another episode. Um, um, I hope you all enjoyed it. I hope you've enjoyed the discussion. Um, if anyone wants to discuss further with me um, their takes on canon, um, whether they think something is canon or isn't canon, if there's another franchise they want to debate with me about, if there's any particular fan theories that you accept as part of your own headcanon, then please reach out to me. Um, I can be found, if you search at Gardo on most places, you can probably find me. I'm That's definitely my login on Reddit. Um, you, I'm at Gardo Hedgehog on Twitter. Um, Gardo was already taken, so I had to improvise. I'm also at Gardo on Instagram. Uh, my Instagram page is mainly used for my painting. Um, I tend to have put the logo for the channel on several of my social medias, so it's pretty easy to find me. Just look for this logo. <laughs> Thank you for listening today. I hope whatever you find yourself doing, you enjoy yourself and take the time you need to look after yourself. Life is still hard at the minute. Things are getting better. It's also Mental Health Awareness Week, I believe. So please look after your mental health um, just as much as you do your physical health. Take care of yourselves, everyone. And until next time.